Welcome to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Guaranteed to put a smile on your face each and every week. Who, me, Kevin? Food Bites oh. with, with Sarah Patterson uh, and the long-suffering Kevin. Oh, you are suffering. You're all rugged up, snug as a bug in your beanie. I have my days when the cold gets into the into the mm. into my bones and the chi- and uh, I really feel the chill. Today's one of those days. It's like true uh, Ballarat-type weather. Yeah, it is. Very much so. Very much that icy, icy mm. air. Nothing <laughs> icy about our guest. We welcome him with open arms and look forward to, to you having a listen to the chat yes. that we have with John Fain. Yes, former ABC at Melbourne Radio Mornings host. A bit of a novelty act in a way too because he pulled the pin on himself as opposed <laughs> Before someone pulled the pin for him. <laughs> the, uh, the lovely thing in radio is normally you, oh. you're pulling the knives out of your back as you leave, but he actually got to uh, uh, pull the pin himself. You know, it's one of the more fascinating chit-chats we've had on oh, this yeah. uh, podcast. He's a very well-travelled man, very knowledgeable man. Uh, he's been very to erudite some... man. It's a lovely Absolutely. word you used on the Facebook page, an erudite man. And, and just, just, uh, just to pre-warn you, uh, John's travelled all sorts hmm. of different parts of the world and has seen some things. There was a, a marvellous trip he did with his son that he talks about yeah. in the interview. And he's seen some things that, uh, uh, to us, Might very unsavoury. Unsavoury, yep. But they're a part of life and a part of, uh, of what goes on when you do travel overseas. The circle of life, yeah. Uh, and it, can, it might be a bit confronting to some people to listen to how, how brilliantly John mm. actually describes it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that's in this interview. So just a little pre-warning about that. Yeah, got some uh, fascinating tales to tell. Oh. Just about his, uh, his 30 years at the ABC and radio in general. <laughs> you know how you know you'll how, get a few laughs out of this. You, you know how you got that preconceived idea that weird things happen at the ABC? You're about to have that <laughs> absolutely brought home to you absolutely. like you wouldn't believe. Absolutely. Uh, so looking forward to uh, that. We've got our food poll later well, on. Well, it's is... a real fizzer. <laughs> oh. You like that? Oh, dear. Oh it dear. literally is a fizzer. <laughs> it is a fizzer. Uh, we'll let you know all about that. But first, uh, because it is a, a little bit longer than our normal interviews, hmm. enjoy John Fain. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. John, we're obviously well-versed with your uh, your prowess in a radio studio, but how do you shape up in the kitchen? Depends who you ask. Shall I call my wife in? And <laughs> Perhaps we should. It won't reflect well on me. I'm very good at cleaning up and doing the dishes. <laughs> and, in fact, uh, if anyone ever does look, and I'm sure they never do, but if you have a look at my entry in Who's Who, under hobbies it has washing dishes. <laughs> and I, I do get a kind of meditative hit out of cleaning things, so I'm quite upfront about that. But I'm not as incompetent as I make out. I'm being a bit self-deprecating. If I'm given the right ingredients and I actually know, like I'm told you're cooking on whatever night and I make up my mind what I'll cook and I get the right ingredients, I'm absolutely fine and I can cook practically anything. But if, on the other hand, it's 6.30 and she looks at me and I look at her and she says, your turn, it can be a disaster. If I just go to the fridge and see what's there and try and make something out of it, it can sometimes even be inedible. So, <laughs> I mean, there's things I really enjoy cooking. I love making soups. I love making stews. There's a seafood stew we had once in Italy, and I said, that's the best thing I've ever eaten. I'm going to learn how to make that. And if you go to the market, you buy the right things, you make the right stock. And sometimes I've even made stock from scratch, but it's so much work. It's hardly like it's just, you've got to be obsessed or fanatical in my view, but I totally respect and admire people who do it, but it's so much work. So I'll just buy stock. And then 
uh, leave it sitting on the stove on a winter's weekend and you dip into it. It's usually better on the second day and I can get right into that. Uh, you know, I, I cooked for my parents while they were alive uh, for about the last five years. Twice a week I'd go over and cook dinner for them on Mondays and Thursdays and I kind of got into it. They had a very limited appetite by the time they were in their late 80s and 90s. So you had to kind of cater to their needs. My mother just loved anything seafood, so I just sort of, you know, cooked a you know, a piece of salmon or some prawns or whatever it was. My dad preferred red meat, so I often found myself cooking different meals for my mother and my father. He'd love a lamb chop. He was born in New Zealand. He's got this kind of, you know, lamb thing going. Mm. So you just went, okay, it's not that hard. It's not that complicated. Off we go. Tell us about your heritage, uh, John. What was on the, the table for you growing up? Well, I grew up in a, a not orthodox but traditional Jewish family. My mother's heritage is German. My father's heritage was Russian. And they met in New Zealand. My mother went as a refugee from Hitler's Germany to New Zealand. My father was born there from parents who'd come away from the pogroms, you know, fiddler on the roof sort of stuff. And they met at university. She was a physiotherapy student. He was a medical student. And we grew up with a very, you know, typical Jewish family, traditional diet. Um, You know, my mother would not just the sort of, you know, special meals for festivals, you know, the gefilte fish and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, we would have some exotic things other than the typical. Um, she used to cook tongue in mushroom sauce, Ooh. which I kind exotic. of, you know. Yeah, it's not doing it for me, John. <laughs> well, I kind of miss it now. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. But um, other things, uh, you know, nothing particularly ridiculously exotic or unusual for, a, you know, middle-class Melbourne Jewish family. But, you know, schnitzels, that was her heritage, that sort of stuff. But then they became very adventurous. They travelled a lot through my father's work. And they actually picked up a lot of food inspiration on their travels. And my mother was a very good cook and she loved trying new things. So she went through a phase where she was cooking Indian food. And, you know, as everybody listening to this will know, you've got to have the right herbs and spices and they don't last forever. So you sort of go through a phase of using them and then you move on. And, uh, you know, their, their diet changed a lot. Mine did too. Then when I left home, uh, I was in share houses and I started seeing what other people ate and was introduced to all sorts of more, well, for me, exotic, for them, fairly normal things. And some of the <laughs> concoctions in the share houses were unspeakable, I might say. But, uh, and then in my married life with Jan, she's a very good cook and very fussy and I'm not. I'm more a sort of slapdash, throw it together kind of person. And she can and does cook anything. So, you know, these days... I mean, last night we had a butterfly chicken, um, you know, we'll have a lot of seafood. We don't eat a lot of red meat at home, but I'll make up for that when we go out. And uh, we've got a niece who's vegan, so we've kind of had to embrace that. And, yeah, you, you become much more eclectic. I mean, my favourite food is Japanese. It's pretty hard to make it at home, but if we go out, that'll be my first choice. Are you but an adventurous eater? To, don't mind going to the pub for, a you know, a, a steak and chips either. Yeah. So are you an adventurous eater? Do you try? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll eat anything, and I have eaten anything. Um, I've eaten dog. Uh, I've, you know, on travel, my attitude to travel is you you don't travel and eat the same food you'd eat at home. You go and whatever the locals eat and where the locals eat, you eat there. So about, oh, what, 12 years ago now, I took long service leave from the radio from the ABC, and our younger son, Jack, took a gap year, and we drove from Melbourne to London. And we went through very remote parts of Central Asia, you know, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Iran, uh, out 
out way back in China where tourists never go, where people would come and stare at us while we ate because they'd never seen Europeans before in the mountains and jungles and right through, you know, up the top of Laos and Cambodia and through Timor and Indonesia and all the little islands that you go island hopping to get your way through. And whatever the locals eat and wherever they eat, you know, nothing's better than pulling up a milk crate and sitting on the side of the road with people trying the breakfast porridge or whatever it might be and, and saying, okay, so this is how you live. And, you know, I, I, I'm not at all a fan of fast food. Uh, avoid it whenever possible. I'm actually, I'm probably very anti the golden arches and that sort of stuff. Yep. And uh, it distresses me terribly when you're somewhere exotic and remote and then they pop up out of nowhere and you go oh my god this culture is being destroyed but um yeah you know seeing people barbecuing dog in the mountains in laos and saying oh all right okay can we try a bit of that uh is part of what traveling is about for me it's uh it's interesting um we perceive uh, there being uh, i guess a, a hierarchy when it comes to animals that we eat um and, and Coming across somebody barbecuing a, a dog and being offered that, was there any hesitation on your part? And what was it like? First of all, it's salty. Yeah. Uh, not particularly nice. I mean, it gets worse. Uh, we were one time out in Western rural China and because we were driving in our car from our front gate to Piccadilly Circus. So, you know, we kind of stuck out like the proverbial. We pulled into a car park in China to drive in China as a foreigner you have to have a guide, a government-approved guide with you all the time, and that's to make sure that you don't wander off. Yeah. And uh, she took us to a particular restaurant. There's a neon sign with two dogs on it out the front advertising what sort of a restaurant it is. And at the back, there are dogs tied up. And on the way in, you feel like patting them, but on the way out, mm, they're not there anymore. Oh, wow. And, you know, we heard about Wuhan and the, the wet market, but that's absolutely normal. Wherever you go in China, the food is alive until you want it. Mm. You know, if you want chicken, there's chickens in a coop and they reach in, they grab one out and they whack it on the head and it's butchered in front of you and then it's prepared and, and, and you know, in three minutes flat, it's on the fire. And likewise, with all sorts of other creatures, fish are kept in huge, big kind of, um, what they're not buckets, what are they? They're huge tubs mm. uh, with aerated water. And if you say you want fish, someone re reaches in and grabs one and whacks it on the head with a stick mm. And then in front of you, it's, you know, it's filleted or gutted or whatever is needed and bingo, it's on the fire. And it's very immediate. It's very direct. In, um, in Uzbekistan and Tashkent, we stayed with a family in their little bungalow at the back, which was better than staying in a hotel. And uh, in honour of us, they slaughtered a, a lamb mm. in front of us. And you go, okay, I'm not used to watching someone slit the throat of a lamb and bleed it out and then butcher it. But that's where our food comes mm. from. There's nothing kind of, you know, you're not going to the supermarket and getting it out of mm. a freezer or out of a nicely, you know, glad wrapped tray. It's, this is it. This is real. Did that um, change? Did that change you or, or your son, Jack, you mentioned that became the no. book, obviously. Didn't change the no, way no. you, no? You know, you're driving along the road and there's, there's a, you know, there'll be a truck in front of you and there's a goat hanging from its feet on the back of the truck with its neck cut and it's bleeding out because when they get to where they're going, they're going to pull it out and butcher it and cook it. And, you know, you go around the markets and there's, 
I mean, nothing gets wasted. There's sheep's heads, there's intestines. It's all for sale. It's all there. It's not, um, it's not sanitised. Mm. And I kind of think that authenticity, there's something admirable about it, although I'm not expecting it to be created here. You're not going to open a rival to Safeway tomorrow that uh, looks like no, that. No, but mind you, the Queen Vic market's not that far from it if you uh, go to the, you know, big markets. But, you know, we do a cleaner version. But that's first world, third world. That's, that's what it's about. Yeah. We um let's go. Huh? Back. <laughs> I was just going to to go back to uh, to the rigors of uh, of radio and morning radio. And even though it's not breakfast radio, it still entails getting up very very early in the morning. I'm sure. Uh, what impact did that have your your years doing morning radio on your body clock? And um and what impact did it have on your dietary habits? How, how deep and dirty are we going to get here? <laughs> as dirty as you like. You're going to bring your bladder up, I know. You're going to say yeah, your bladder still gets up at 4.30, doesn't it? 4.15, oh. yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and it still wakes me up because, it's, <laughs> you know, it's 23 years of saying, okay, this is this is when we get to when the bladder starts to work. And so you don't, you don't untrain your body from that. Mm. And it's a lifestyle. It's not a job. Um, it's so all-consuming what I used to do. And you... You would basically you either do it properly or you don't do it at all was yep. my mantra, and to do it properly you had to immerse yourself in it, and uh, it was exhausting, absolutely exhausting, which is one of the reasons why I pulled the pin when I did. I mean there were several reasons. One of them was that I was tired, like chronically tired, long, deep tired. Um, secondly, I wanted very much. This was really important to me. I wanted to be the one who chose when I stopped, rather than have someone choose for me. And I'd seen what happened to lots of colleagues and friends who'd had their radio time ripped out when they didn't want it to be taken away from them, and they never recover. Live radio, daily live radio, is—it's just such a an adrenaline rush. It's so addictive. It's such a fabulous thing to do. Um, to have it taken away when you don't want it to can be, you know, utterly crushing for people. And, I mean, I'm not going to rattle off names, but there are lots of people who didn't want to finish, were told they had to finish, and it's something that some people don't recover from. And I was determined that wouldn't happen to me. And apart from which, I mean, you know, for goodness sake, I mean, I was at the ABC for 30 years, 23 of them doing the same shift. And at some point you've got to say to yourself, enough, someone else gets to have a go. And I, I kind of... I never wanted to be one of those, and there's plenty of them, uh, those talk show hosts who believe their own bullshit. And, you know, I mentioned Jan already once and and here again, you know, she was always my secret weapon. So uh, I'd come home and say, oh, my God, you can't believe I just, you know, ripped the Prime Minister apart today or whatever it might be. And she'd say, that's great, but can you go and pick up the dog shit from the garden? <laughs> you know, we're running out of washing powder. And, and you'd sort of go, Hmm, this is the real world. That's not, you know, that's a version of the real world, but it's not the only real world. And it was a great gig, but you've got to keep your feet firmly planted. Otherwise, and I think, you know, we do see this, you know, whether it's Alan Jones or John Laws or some of those sort of people more. It's not just a Sydney thing. There's people all around the world and around Australia who start to think they're actually more important than they are. And, you know, I always said, I, I always reminded everybody at the ABC you're just the rostered mornings presenter. Mm-hmm. And I always reminded people, I'm the rostered mornings presenter. I'm not, if you start thinking you're a star, you're already, I reckon you're already starting to undo yourself. 
So does yeah, that, that work my- in reverse, John? That um, that also the people that you've um, spoken to, no matter how pro- high, high profile they are, at the end of the day, they're just people. Yeah, and some of them are doing incredible jobs, but some of the most memorable people you talk to are telling their own personal story. I mean, you know, the, the mum who's campaigning for the law to change after her son was killed in a car crash. And the driver who killed her son is still driving around the day after the crash because back then you didn't automatically have your license suspended after a fatality, but now you do. And she succeeded. And her name's Sharon Gilhooly, and she's an extraordinary woman. And she changed the law because she was so outraged. And the bushfires, you know, the the two hardest things I ever did in my 23 years on the morning show on the ABC in Melbourne, the two hardest things I ever did was stay on air when our friend and colleague Jill Maher was murdered, and we had to stay on air and somehow still talk about it without breaking down Um, and then the bushfires and holding the hands of people and helping them not just during the immediate crisis but in the rebuild and being there for them being a resource and being able to solve problems for them with local councils with um, planning issues with builders with insurers you know, getting them to rebuild in Strathewan and King Lake and getting the school back up and running and helping people even. I mean, just as I speak about it, there's these incredible things that flash through my head. One day we had a talkback caller like three or four days after the worst of the fires. And I was on air all through that night and the next day and the next day, and we just didn't take a break for two weeks, I think. Um, And this woman rang up and she said, look, we're and we were doing a kind of, you know, constant appeals. People need somewhere for horses to be adjusted or can someone look after my dog for three days till I've got a house with a fence, this sort of thing. And this woman rang up and said, look, we desperately need men's suits. And I said, well, overalls, boots, yeah, jeans, I can get that. What do you need suits for? And she said, funerals. Oh. And you just, you know, things like that come back to you. I mean, it's a long time ago now, but it's still... It still gets to me. And then when uh, about two years later, I got an invitation to the first housewarming back in King Lake. And I sort of responded as an email and I wrote back and said, look, you know, this is a thing for the community, for you, your neighbours, you, you know, I'd, I'd feel like an intruder. And they went, oh, no, not at all. You'll be a guest of honour. And I thought, wow, I, I, I think of myself as just doing a job and I'm trying to do it as well as I can and to help people who need help for years afterwards, not just, you know, while the fire trucks are there. And the people on the other end are going, well, no, actually, we couldn't have got this far without the help you've given us. You've sort of smashed through the red tape. You've forced the insurance companies to come to the party. You've made the government drop some of the silly rules. And, you know, we want to say thank you. And it was extraordinary. It was an amazing night. Wow. That's uh, that's a connection that uh, that commercial radio doesn't seem to have. It's there, as you quite rightly mentioned, well, while the can, fire I mean, trucks it, are there. It's radio. Radio is the most intimate connection. It's up to commercial radio how they do that. Yeah, true. I mean, some commercial, if they wanted to, they could. Yeah. But the investment the ABC made in emergency broadcasting, I mean, the behind-the-scenes training and the amount of work done so that you could do it when the sirens were going was extraordinary. And a lot of the commercial radio stations, they wouldn't do that training and that prep. I mean, we spent, you know, 
half days sitting down with people from fire brigade and ambulance and police command and, you know, developing protocols and learning how to do things and how to do things in a way that maintained our independence but also held them to account if necessary if they did something wrong. That was pretty delicate. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that relationship that you have through radio, television can't do it. In fact, I'll, I'll confide in your listeners a little story um, about I don't know, a week or two into the emergency in Black Saturday, the ABC TV news people came upstairs. Now, in itself, that's remarkable. They never, ever, <laughs> TV would never come to visit radio. It was like, oh, no, who are you? You don't matter. And they came upstairs. The boss came up and said, have you got any spare ABC radio or 3LO? Have you got any spare shirts? And we said, why? He said, because they won't talk to us, but they'll They'll talk to you. <laughs> Goodness. We want to borrow some radio shirts so we can put them on our crew. And the words that were said couldn't possibly be repeated when we told him to just <laughs> off. But um, it was amazing. It was amazing that people understood, yeah, yeah, sure, the ABC, you're the ABC, but your television, we don't like what you're doing, but we'll talk to the radio people because they're actually, you know, they're authentically connecting with us and they're, they're respecting us, I suppose, is what it comes down to. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. I, lo- I love radio. I never liked television. Yeah. I've never, never, it's never been something that sat comfortably with me, but radio is, is that magical personal connection that you just mm. can't, you can't fake. And it endures. Yeah, it does. And it's been, I guess, three years since you, you hung up the headphones at the ABC, uh, John. Now, you have mentioned that um, as – it impacted all of us, the pandemic. Um, you know, um, engagements got cancelled, diary appointments started drying up, and that happened to you just as it did to many people. And and you ha- have said that that was a time that got you pretty down. Um, what were those days like for you? I was in Port Moresby working when the first sort of quarantining and other arrangements were introduced, and I had to fly back and lock myself in the bungalow out the back for two weeks. Mm. I got a swag and a sleeping bag. The dog thought it was hilarious. <laughs> um, and Jan would cook some food and then come out and put it on a table and go back inside and I'd come out of the bungalow and pick it up and take <laughs> it in. It was kind of weird. Um, and then uh, all, yeah, everything. So when I left the ABC, I had a whole lot of things lined up that were going to keep me reasonably busy and they all collapsed. Every single thing. And at one stage, about, I don't know, two, three weeks in, I looked in my diary and I had nothing in my diary for the rest of my life. And for someone, I mean, for anyone that can be confronting, but for someone who's been as busy as I used to be, it was an existential crisis. And I kind of, I got a bit miserable and I got down. I went into the garage and started, you know, pulling things apart off old cars and sort of, you know, hitting things with hammers. And after a while, I thought, look, you know, there's a whole lot of people much worse off than we are. Uh, You know, we're actually pretty well equipped to deal with this and stop feeling sorry for yourself. I gave myself a bit of a kick up the ass and uh, got on with other things. And you do, you have to pivot. So I started offering a few pieces to the newspaper just because I thought I had something that wasn't being said that was worth saying. And that turned into a a regular column, which is still going. and I write for a car magazine. Unique cars, an yeah. Old car magazine. And they wrote and said, oh, look, you know, we're going to lay people off and we can't afford to pay anybody. We've had our hands tied behind our back. And I said, that doesn't bother me in the slightest. I'll keep writing for you. 
And, you know, you can, if you ever get some money, you can pay me. And if you don't, so what? I don't care. It just gives me something to think about and something to do and a deadline to meet, which is really part of my kind of, you know, my routine and structure. And then I also had this project that was always on the back burner for decades, which was to write a book about a deceased estate I had to litigate when I was a baby lawyer starting in 1982. And I kind of said to Jan, well, I've always said I'm going to do it. If I don't do it now, I've got to stop saying I'm going to do it. (laughs) Uh I've got to admit I'm never going to do it. But it's a story only I can tell because I lived it and I want to tell it. So I got the ladder and climbed up to the top of the bookshelf and pulled the box of stuff that I'd been hoarding about this from years and years ago. And I got it down and started going through it and eventually turned it into a book. Called Apollo and Thelma. And it's a wonderful story. It's an amazing story tale uh, and the way you've woven yourself in and out of it and and the way that it comes full circle at the end where the place where you wrote the book turns out to have a connection to people it just it's quite it's quite uh, quite unbelievable I mean talk about the circle of life that uh, that book is exactly that isn't it well thank you and I'm glad you enjoyed it it's it's hard to pigeonhole it doesn't fit neatly into any traditional category it's I mean, it, it's it's all true. So in that sense, it's nonfiction, but it's part memoir, it's part Australiana, it's part history, um, part biography. Um, and so it, it's about Apollo and Thelma were a brother and a sister. He was the mighty Apollo, the world's strongest man. And for people who have memories going back to the 60s and 70s, even the 50s, he used to have a, a, a strongman routine where he had an elephant stand on him and he survived and he pulled trams and fire trucks with his teeth down the street, for often for charity but sometimes for profit. Um, he was an entertainer. He ran a gym. He was the first person to introduce Japanese martial arts to Australia. And the story of him, his wife, the, the glamorous Rhonda, who was the first to offer uh, self-defence classes for women yeah. in Melbourne. Uh, and maybe in Australia, I haven't been able to establish that, but certainly very early on. And the story of how he built his career, and he was extraordinary. He had the self-belief like almost nobody does, and he had a threshold for pain that was almost superhuman. And he did these things. If you called them stunts, he'd get very angry. He'd say, they're not stunts. They're genuine feats of strength. No one else can do what I can do. And it's true. To this day, people can't do what he could do. And he was also a brilliant instinctive self-promoter. And then with Rhonda, he used to do all sorts of things. You know, she was, at first, she was just the the pretty sides sort of, you know, accessory. And then she developed all sorts of skills of her own. But the story takes all sorts of twists and turns. Uh, Rhonda one day drops three small boys aged five, seven, and nine off at school. And then she just vanishes. Uh, And she disappears with one of the martial arts instructors from the gym. And they just, they do a runner. Um, Meanwhile, Apollo... He, he comes into my life. His name is Paul Alexander McPherson Anderson. And uh, Apollo comes into my life when his sister dies and he and his sons inherit her estate. And his sister is the publican of this incredibly remote, rough and tumble pub in the middle of nowhere in the Northern Territory at a place called Top Springs. And she dies of an asthma attack in 1981, very, very unexpectedly and suddenly, and leaves behind a hell of a mess. And I become, I'm the lawyer for the estate for for Apollo and his sons who inherit this pub. And she, her story is incredible. She has this incredible reputation for being money hungry and greedy and rough as anything, rough as guts. She ran this place, you know, population three, (laughs) uh, and she ran it with a pearl-handled revolver in her pocket (laughs) and 
her nickname, if you'll excuse me, if anyone's of delicate sensibility, <laughs> I suspect that they've probably gone already, but uh, <laughs> her nickname was Old Leather Tits. <laughs> and she was a hell of a character by all accounts. But the book starts off, I only met Thelma Hawkes after she died. Yeah. Her brother, the mighty Apollo, introduced us. And to tell you their story, I have to tell you some of mine. And over many, many years, whenever I was up in the Northern Territory, I would go and interview people, any old timer I could find who knew stories about her. And I found her ex-husband, Sid Hawks, and his story is extraordinary. And everyone you meet tells you, oh, now you've got to go and talk to so-and-so. Oh, you should have a tr- chat to Ernie, have a chat to Dicko, have a chat to so-and-so. And, it, and then they tell you five more people. And, you know, stories from June Tapp, who's a, a territory legend, and the territory is just full of all of these yarns. And then it takes me, the Top Springs pub is the nearest pub to the Gurindji walk-off, mm. which is famous for, you know, from little things, big things grow. So that song and that iconic photo of Gough Whitlam pouring sand into the hands of an Aboriginal stockman whose name is Vincent Lingiari. And through a circuitous route that starts with an old judge and then takes us to Frank Hardy, the famous Australian author, I get back into the Gurindji story. And Frank Hardy was the Gurindji self-appointed publicist after he was um, found not guilty of criminal defamation for Power Without Glory. And so I revisit Cal Gurindji and discover that there's a whole lot more at Wave Hill than we've been taught. And the reasons we're not taught what really happened there is because it's just, it's too hard. It's, it's too savage. It's just, it's, it's unspeakable. Um, we're told that the Gurindji walk-off and the land rights struggle was about dignity and wages and land. And when you look at the documents and the actual original petition that the Gurindji sent to the Governor-General in the 60s, there are four more words which just are never talked about. And those four more words at the end of dignity, land, wages is, and to protect our women. And when I saw that, to protect our women, and I'm reading this in Kalkarindji, it's on the wall of the, the community office there. And I'm thinking, what's that about? And start investigating and researching and reading and talking to people. And it's about rape. And the whole of the territory, it's about dingo trappers and buffalo hunters and minerals explorers and pastoralists. In the early days, white men helped themselves to Aboriginal girls and it's it's a horrible story, but it's one if we believe in truth-telling and reconciliation. And if we believe in making progress, we just we have to be honest and forthright about it. And yeah. I then had to ask myself, well, now I've learned these things, do I leave them out of the book? Mm. And I always had a reputation for being, you know, asking the mongrel question on the radio and being fearless. And I stared at myself while I was brushing my teeth in the mirror one morning and went, no, it's 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 got to be there. Mm. Otherwise, in a way, I felt I would have been contributing to the the decades of cover-up, yep. mm. uh, this stuff has to be talked about. And I know I'm a you know stale, pale male. I'm a middle-aged white man. But, hey, I, I've learned this stuff and I want others to know it too. Yeah. Yeah, no, the important stories that have to be told. Um, do you miss the cut and thrust of, of doing radio? Do you Have you found something that, that, that fits that need in you? No. <laughs> um, do you want to think about does. the answer? <laughs> nothing does, but I, yeah. I chose to leave. Yeah. I made that decision. I knew this would happen. I knew that I'd miss it, but I don't regret leaving. Yeah. I miss it terribly. I miss the connection with the audience, that that, you know, connection with knowing what's going to happen next. You know, in that job, you know, you're briefed on Thursday, we're announcing this. Next week we're going to be unveiling that. And I really miss that. But I chose to leave, and that's that's what I 
you know, you make your bed, you lie in it. I didn't know COVID was going to happen, but uh, I've found other things to do and and I hope I can still make a contribution and still be useful. Um, but no, there's no, there's nothing as, nothing as high as daily radio. Yeah. There's plenty of time now for our dinner parties to host them, John. And if and <laughs> if you were to do that, and it sounds like yeah. you'd be very capable at doing that, um, who would be on your uh, your guest list? Well, I've always argued that the person I'd most like to interview in the whole world is Rupert Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Now, whether Jerry Hall comes along as well or not, <laughs> I very much doubt these days. <laughs> but I just I I just think he's an extraordinary man. I mean, more than any other Australian in my lifetime, he's helped shape our world. And yet he's so reclusive. I mean, sure, he's got a public profile, but he doesn't do interviews and he rarely makes speeches. And I, I have no idea what makes him tick, but I'm absolutely, he's number one on my list. And then I've been incredibly lucky and privileged to have even just a little bit of time with a whole bunch of people who just make you laugh. John Cleese, Peter Ustinov. I mean, you know, back in history, it would probably be Lenny Bruce or Groucho Marx, but in my lifetime, you know, I've shared a stage. John Cleese was in Melbourne and he had, I think it was eight nights or something, and he had a couple of AB, different ABC hosts. I think Richard Stubbs did a few nights. I did four nights with John Cleese on stage. So you, wow. he sort of, he set it up a bit like he was going to be interviewed, but you were given, you weren't given a script, mm. but you were given a structure and you were asked to stay, stick within the structure. But by the third night and, you know, we... The first night I was in awe of him. The second night I was like, I still pinch myself. I can't believe it. Third night I started playing around a bit and just threw a few things in. And afterwards I didn't know whether he'd kill me or, or, or cuddle me and he cuddled me. Oh. But I loved that. And you actually made me think about something I hadn't thought about since I was a boy and all this sort of stuff. And I just thought, oh, I can't believe how lucky can you be? I mean, you know, I grew up with Monty Python and just think, wow, this is amazing. So you get to share a microphone with people. Barry Humphreys taught me one of the great lessons. Um, we, we were sitting down and I interviewed him many times and each time he has this mischievous glint in his eye and he, he said, for this hour, my life is in your hands. Wow. And you go, yeah, okay, that's how it works. You're trusting someone so you don't betray that trust, you honour that trust. And that was a great lesson to learn. And John Howard taught me, I mean, he wouldn't be my chosen dinner party uh, uh, companion, but he taught me another great lesson about radio, which was arose from an interview. This is a very short story, but it has to be set up properly. Um, remember, there was cash for comment. Yes, and so there, for people who aren't familiar with that, there was um, a media watch scoop on ABC TV that Alan Jones, John Laws, and a bunch of other people were accepting sponsorships, secret sponsorships from the Australian Banking Association. They're getting paid by the banks to go easy on them. And it was obviously not disclosed. But, you know, they'd talk to a bank about a terrible thing and then they'd sort of say, oh, well, you know, you're such good people, you're going to fix it all up, blah, blah, blah. And when it was revealed that they were in fact being paid to do this, it became a big investigation. And eventually the Australian Broadcasting Tribunal, after a full inquiry where they were all represented by QCs and the rest of it, found that they were corrupt and unethical. The next day after that inquiry or within days of that inquiry handing down its results, John Howard was in my studio. Now, he maintained a perpetual conversation with the Australian people through Talkback Radio. There wasn't a week that went by without John Howard doing Talkback somewhere in the country, somewhere with someone. And he quite liked the ABC audience and he'd come in to talk to us. And 
along with all the questions about the war in Iraq and vertical fiscal imbalance or whatever else, mm-hmm. I thought I had this really smart-ass question for John Howard, which was, given that Alan Jones, John Laws and others have been found to have been unethical and corrupt, will you continue to appear on their radio programs? Now, I thought that was a pretty shit-hot question. <laughs> and Howard looked at me and he kind of got a little twinkle in his eye and he moved in close to the microphone and he said, John, I'm sure you think when I come in here that I'm coming in to talk to you, but I'm not. I'm actually coming in to talk to your audience. And while those gentlemen have an audience, I'll talk to that audience too. Oh, yes, yes. Great answer. It's a differentiator. Yep, yep. Game, set, match, John Howard. Yeah. He understood what we were doing better than I did. <laughs> Yeah. And I thought, wow, okay. That's a light bulb moment. Really good lesson. Yeah. That's a good lesson. But he wouldn't make your dinner party. He wouldn't make my dinner party, no, because he'd only talk about cricket. <laughs> we can't have that. Probably, probably politics, and I don't mind a bit of politics. I'd probably invite Angela Merkel. Mm. I think she's probably the most remarkable and enduring political leader of our times. But, no, I wouldn't have John Howard right. I have great respect for him and I often quote him on different things. Yeah. And he's obviously a remarkable man, but no, he wouldn't be on my <laughs> my final list of a half a dozen or so. Fair enough too. Yep. Fair and just enough. to uh, to finish us off, John, we normally ask our guests uh, if you have a cooking or a kitchen tip to share. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be very presumptuous of me to try and suggest to anybody, but anything. Uh, very fond of an anchovy. I think anchovies can pretty much improve almost anything. Um, I don't know. I mean, a lot of my cooking used to be for kids, and I think the simpler the better. I have a um, a party trick for kids called Tiger Toast. Ooh, yes, <laughs> yeah. what's that? Um, you just make some toast, and then you put Vegemite on it, and then you cut strips of the cheapest cheese you can <laughs> find. You stick it under the griller, and it comes out striped. And so you've got... The Vegemite, the cheese, the Vegemite, the cheese, the Vegemite, the cheese, yeah. and the kids love it. And you give them you know, zebra toast, tiger toast, call it what you like, and uh, off they go. So little things like that. I'm very fond of a Dutch egg. You know, you get a piece of bread, take a hole out, break an egg in it, cook, fry the egg and both sides and, you know, things like that. Yeah. You know, just comfort food. Love a good chicken soup. My mother had a very good chicken soup and uh, her grandson, our younger son, is very fond of making Uma's chicken soup. Uh, you know, get a whole chicken, just boil it to death, you know, <laughs> lots of veggies in there, scoop off all the fat, let it sit, scoop off the fat again and so on. So really nothing exotic, nothing simple, and uh, I'll leave the, the, the fancy pants stuff to people who know what they're doing. I love it. Been yeah. a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It was, uh, it was great to catch up. And well done on the book, uh, a terrific book. I hope you've got another book in you somewhere. Oh, who knows? But Apollo and Thelma took a long time. It took 40 years, Kevin. Yeah, I know. Yeah, 1981, I think it was, when you got the case at the start, wasn't it? It didn't take 40 years to write. It no. took 40 years to live. Yeah, need but, to yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it's a funny thing writing a book. It's Writing it's the opposite of telling people about it. So marketing it requires the opposite skills. Like writing a book, you've just got to sit and stare at a screen in a dark room for <laughs> you know, months and months and months. And then afterwards, you've got to go around being garrulous and kind of, you know, talk, talking and telling stories about it, which is the opposite of sitting silently staring at a screen. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're the two sides of the same coin. Yeah, exactly. Hey, terrific to talk to you. Thanks, John. Thank really you. appreciate your time. No, thank you for yours. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Our very special guest, John Fain, uh, Apollo and Thelma, the book that I talked to him about, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big 
big work, I can tell you, with <laughs> the hardcover and all that. Uh, and uh, fascinating. And the way that it all intertwines and the way it finishes will have you fascinated. What a wonderful chat we had. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> it was really good. Wouldn't be inviting John Howard to his dinner party, and that's fair enough. You, but you should have who you want. And is quite, But he's quite willing to say nice things about people and actually have an adult conversation with them as opposed to screaming and yelling at them. Yes, just because you don't share the same Correct. values or opinion. We can all still be friends, Kevin. We can. How's that for a concept? What time is it? Um, <laughs> all right, let's get to our food poll. And uh, look, if you have suggestions for our food poll, uh, something you'd like to see debated uh, in the uh, in the yes. court of uh, food bites, let us know. We're happy to do that in the food court of food bites. We're happy to do that. So just jump on the social media. Kevin, platforms. I'm the one who does jokes around here, but well, this Sorry. is a throwback this week to the yep. Carumbara pool kiosk. I think of 1973 for a lot of people. The sherbet bomb. Do you remember those? They were big, yeah. big things that was size of a human head and they were wrapped up like a dumpling. But all they're right. all in different forms, but they're busy. So it was simple, yay or nay to the sherbet bomb? <laughs> Sue Hosking, yay. Rebecca Ann Kane, yes, love them, can't get them here, she lives in Thailand. Glenn Rodder, lollies, yay for me, Pato. Karen, yay. Cherie Dodson, yay. Fran, yay. <laughs> Lisa Marie, yay. Kerry, yay. <laughs> Why is that funny? Michelle Smith, yay. Kerry Rodder, yay, but only the green oh, ones. Oh, no, that's lime. Davin Nicholas says, yay, just the original pink ones, I agree. Lena Massetti, yay. Bart Shaw, hell yeah, butcher and fizzos. What's a fizzo? Uh, well, I think it's a the, the equivalent. Like uh, a Sherby? Because Cherie Dodson immediately jumps in and says, yes, Bart, fizzos, yes, loved them. I need to see a picture of a fizzo. Mm, I know what a fizzo is Sue either. Thornton says, yay, especially banana ones. Renee what? says, Sue Thornton, you beat me to it. Ah. Joe Garra, Dr. Joe Garra, if you don't mind. Well, if the doctor says it's... Yay. Oh, yay. Well, then we're all there. Nolene says, nay. We've uh, finally got huh? a nay. <laughs> yeah, no. Gee, it's polarising, isn't it? Uh, not. Not. Uh, Adam says, hell yeah. Kim says, nay, nay, nay. <laughs> Now oh, be, you give be, me this funny yeah, handle now. now. Be, very, be very careful how you read this one because right, it's a yeah, Twitter handle and you could get it. hell A-U, backs trucky. Would that be right? So it's truckin' hell A-U as in Australia at, uh, and the handle is at uh, backs trucky. Oh, reminds me of that horse. Yeah. Like a kamu cow. Yeah, Cole's fruity sherbet bombs are the bomb. Okay, Goose Girl 101 says yay. Stuart says no thank you. Sally says yay. Slurp 1953. <laughs> God knows how you come up with that as your handle and I don't know that I actually want to know. Just, uh, oh, says yes. Uh, old Crokey says, um, well, look, I'm relieved. Finally, a break from being torn between uh, between choosing between two irresistible old favourites. No, not you too. <laughs> Less of the old. Sherbet bombs reminds me of learn to swim classes where I totally bombed and sank. <laughs> Always a treat from the pool Yay! kiosk. Uh, where to pin my vote? Uh, to help struggling dentists, it's a yay. I'm with you, old croaky. I remember them from the pool kiosk and the eight cent wagon wheels. Sean says yay every day. Jan, Jane Barnes says nay, nay, nay. <laughs> Here go in capitals, always yes. Mark Stevens, yay, but the yellow ones. Muriel Cooper, yay. Uh, Christopher Gates, uh, producer of a couple of our podcast shows, <laughs> says nay, but whiz fizz, <laughs> wow. Oh, he loves the whiz fizz. Oh. The bag with the little spoon. The Mickey Mouse on the front. Chris is a whiz fizz. (laughs) Artie Stevens, love them but can't eat them. Sugar bomb overload, diabetic coma territory. So nay is the word, is the word, is the word. Sylvana says, uh, that's a no from me, I don't like them. 
Joylene says, that is a no from me. And it's a 95% yay yes. for the sherbet bombs. I yes. was more a Skyhooks person. Well, <laughs> No well, I thought uh, it would be a bit closer than that because no. it's a, it's an acquired taste having a big fizz on your tongue, isn't it? Do you it? know they had them in the lolly jar at the radio station no. I worked for <laughs> the other weekend? They had. Uh, oh, you should have still uh, stolen I, some. I did. <laughs> oh, where are they? And I ate them on the way home, and they were good too. The way you when you just cut it, bite into them, then. Boom. The explosion. Yeah. Kevin Phillip, Eugene Aloysius Hillier, how very yep. dare you not bring any home for your darling wife? Well, that was the uh, the plan was <laughs> I put half a dozen in my pocket and the plan was to bring them home. Uh, and but unfortunately, I ended up in your gob. It's a long drive from Geelong. Uh, <laughs> You're forgiven. Mind you, though, though, I'd finished them before I got out of the car park, which was a worry. No, <laughs> well, did you shove them all in at once? <laughs> pretty much. The sherbet bombs. <laughs> your head would have blown off just about ha- at the very well, least I was your ears. A, having a revisit back to being a 12-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> you know you like. You just get them and shovel them in like there's no tomorrow. I used to do that with juicy fruit gum. Oh, the people who have this wad of gum in the our son does it has this wad of gum. How many pieces of chewing gum you got in there? Uh, only seventeen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, those were the days. Oh. Uh, now hang on, let me check my teeth. I'm not sure Put them I, back in. I'm Kevin. not sure I've got any more teeth. Uh, that is uh, food bites for another week. Hope you've enjoyed the program. Uh, m- much thanks to John yeah. Fain. Uh, reminder about his book. Apollo and Thelma. That's available around the place doing a very good read and he's got a website and all yep. those things so it was great to catch up. was indeed. Plenty more good guests and a terrific uh, little chit-chat on the way for Food Bites. Don't forget it's a radio show now across mm. regional Victoria and New South Wales on a Sunday morning. If you're yes. not doing anything around 9 o'clock, have a listen. Join us for a cuppa. Thanks for listening to Food Bites. Check out our Facebook page for recipes, tips and all the latest news. That's Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier.